I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. I'm going to ask you to take your copy of God's Word. And let's get right back into the book of James, shall we? James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. For the message, the strange, sad case of Mr. Big Mouth Christian. The strange, sad case of Mr. Big Mouth Christian. Are you a Christian? That's what the gunman asked the students at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon, on October 1, 2015. If they answered yes, he shot them in the head. If they answered no or didn't answer, he shot them in the legs. It is often said that a crisis never made any man. It only reveals what he already is. That thought is both comforting and terrifying because we all wonder how we would react if everything we held dear was on the line. Our family, our health, our career, our future, our life. The story from Oregon has been repeated over and over again, not only in America, but increasingly countries around the world, Libya, Somalia, India, China, Indonesia. Are you a Christian? Are you willing? to answer that question. We all wonder in that moment, would we have enough faith to make it or would we collapse? All the things we say we believe, would they still be enough when the moment comes? You never really know the answer, do you, until that moment arrives, as it did for the students in Oregon. For most of us, most of the days, the tests of life will not be so dramatic but they come nonetheless. Many years ago, in fact, coming through Christian college a long time ago, I used to hear it put this way. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The application is always the same. Live so no matter when that moment comes, there can be no doubt. So while I was preparing this message, I found this headline. Quote, Syrian Christians cried Jesus before ISIS mass beheading. The story begins this way. The Islamic State executed 12 Christians, including a 12-year-old boy, after they refused to abandon their faith and convert to Islam. The murders occurred outside of Aleppo. In front of the team leader and relatives in the crowd, the Islamic extremists cut off the fingertips of the boy and severely beat him, telling his father they would stop the torture only if he, the father, returned to Islam. What would you do? Not if they tortured you, but if they were torturing your son. And the team leader refused. Relatives said the ISIS militants also tortured and beat him and the other 
ministry workers. The three men and the boy then met their deaths in crucifixion. Those of us who live in the West, we need to read stories like that. In part, so we will remember to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing such torture for their faith. Hebrews 13.3 reminds us to, quote, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. By remembering those who have suffered so much, we are made strong in our own faith. We stand firm because they stood firm through their fiery trials. And I just pause here to say this. I have said it before here. I increasingly believe, it's increasingly obvious, with the rising tide of anti-Christian hostility in the West, in Europe, in the United States, those stories that once seemed so remote to us, all of that is coming closer and closer and closer. It's against that backdrop that we consider James 2, 14 through 17. Given the pressure to compromise our faith and the rising tide of persecution against believers around the world, we need to hear what James, the brother of our Lord, says to us. In a real sense, he is asking us a question as vital today as it was 2,000 years ago. This you remember in this series, Letter to the 21st Century. Here's a question from the first century that echoes down to us over 2,000 years later. James wants to know, you say you are a Christian. Talk is cheap. Where is the evidence? Our passage, really fairly simple to understand. It begins with a question in verse 14. It moves to an illustration in verses 15 and 16. And then James draws a conclusion in verse 17. A question, an illustration, and a conclusion. Let's see what James has to say about living our faith in a dangerous world. First, a serious question. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I think, all theological controversy aside, I think the most important phrase in that verse are these words. What good is it, my brother, if someone says, if someone says. By putting the matter that way, James imagines a hypothetical person claiming that he has faith in Jesus, but whose life offers no works of any kind. In the Greek, does not have works, is in the present tense, indicating an ongoing condition of the heart. It doesn't mean, well, today I had a bad day, or yesterday I had a bad day, or this is a bad week. It means as an ongoing day after day and week after week condition, this man is talking big about his faith. He's saying a whole lot, but there is nothing, nothing to back it up. James here uses the word works to cover the vast range of things that a godly person might do, from praying and preaching and singing and giving and testifying to serving and helping others. Here then is a person who is boasting. There's your problem. Here's a person 
who is boasting. He's talking a lot. He's doing nothing. He is, he is talking whipped cream. He is living skimmed milk. He says, I believe in Jesus, but there is nothing there, nothing at all, nothing remotely Christian. He thinks he's okay because he verbally says, I believe, but he doesn't show the love of Christ. And he lives like the pagans around him. Many ways, many ways, this problem is a problem as much of the lips as in his life. His mouth is writing a check. His life can't cash. He apparently is completely unchanged by the gospel he says he believes. He might as well be an unbeliever because for all intents and purposes, that's what he is. And I stop here to say, you can find people like this in almost every church. They are apparently unchanged by years of church attendance, hundreds of gospel sermons, and thousands of stirring worship services. James asked us a question. What good is that sort of religion? It's useless. It's empty. It's vain. It's pointless and self-deceived. There isn't one good thing to say for this man and his faith. He does no good for himself or for anyone else. Can that faith save him? No, no, no. No, 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 that faith can't save him. Are you with me? That faith can't save him. No, 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 that faith can't save him. But he goes to church. No, that faith can't save him. But he listens to the preaching. No, that faith can't save him. He puts his money in the offering plate. No, that faith can't save him. He, he says he reads the Bible. No, that faith cannot save him. There's nothing to back up his profession of faith. He's making a claim for himself that is not true. We see this all too often inside the church. The man with the loudest mouth often has the emptiest life. People like this jabber endlessly about their faith, but it's all bells and whistles, sound and fury, signifying nothing. To help us understand what he means, James asked us to consider now the strange, sad case of Mr. Big Mouth Christian. Okay, so you got the question there. Now this shocking example in verses 15 and 16. Here's the question. You say, you say you have faith, but you got nothing to back it up. Nothing. Zero. You're a big talker. Here's the question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and any of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, question. When James says, faith without works is dead, being alone, what kind of works does James have in mind? Well, look, let's start with a simple observation. Coming to Christ ought to change a person from the inside out without much effort. We could imagine a number of changes that ought to be obvious sooner or later. You don't get drunk on the weekends. You don't sleep around. You don't watch porn. 
You get serious about the Bible. You sign up for a missions trip. You become a generous giver. You clean up your potty mouth. You start hanging around fired up Christians. You get rid of your critical spirit. You let go of your bitterness. You release your anger. You look forward to coming to church on Sunday. You pray for your friends to come to Christ. You make spiritual growth a priority. You cheerfully endure mockery from those who don't know Jesus. Now, look, that's a pretty good list, but any of us could have written that list, and you could add a lot of other things to it. You'll notice... I started with three don'ts. Peter does the same thing when he lists various practices the newly saved Gentiles no longer take part in. 1 Peter 4, 3. And he mentions you're no longer living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. When you give up your membership in the idol club, when you're no longer going along with the orgies, when you're no longer living for fleshly enjoyment. When that happens, your friends will ridicule you for not joining with them in their debauchery. That's 1 Peter 4, 4. If we wanted to, and it would be perfectly okay, we can make a long list of the things you used to do that you no longer do because you're now saved. That's a perfectly good way to put it. Or we could talk about the character changes that, that come, the fruit of the Spirit, and love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could talk about those things, and that would be good too. Or we could talk about what Dr. Ryrie used to call the habits of holiness, worship and prayer and praise and Bible memory and Bible study, local church involvement, evangelism and mission. We could talk about that. Now, here's what's interesting to me. So... We could talk about the sins you give up, you got it, or we could talk about the spiritual, the fruit of the Spirit, the character that you develop, or you could talk about the outward religious practices, the, the habits of holiness. All that's valid. James doesn't talk about any of that. He focuses on how we respond when confronted with the practical needs of fellow believers. Now, the phrase, brother or sister, means he's talking about needy Christians. These are the ones who are closest to us spiritually. They are close enough that we actually see them hungry and virtually naked. The internet, you understand, it's turned the whole world into a village. We see suffering brothers and sisters every day via the media and the internet. How do we respond? So, this is what James wants us to think about. Here comes a suffering, starving, nearly naked brother or sister. We see them. We see them. We can't help it. They're standing right in front of us. That's the whole point. We see them just as much as the priest and the Levite saw the hurting man on the road to Jericho. They saw him and passed by on the other side. That's an easy response. I don't say that about you. I say it about me. I'm busy. I am busy. I'm busy. I got stuff to do. We're tired. We're behind schedule. We've got a meeting to attend. People are depending on us. We're under pressure already. So we pass by on the other side for reasons that are not in themselves wrong. Eventually, along comes a Samaritan who helps the man beaten nearly to death by the side of the road. That's why we call that man the good Samaritan. Now, James is asking us to consider a response even worse than passing by on the other side. It's one thing 
to see a need and simply walk away because you think you can't get involved. I understand. Look, there's so many needs out there. No one person can meet them all. I understand that. There's so many needs, so many good ministries asking for money. Can't literally give money to everybody. I mean, this world is full of hurting people. So I understand. I can only do what I can do. I can't do what I can't do. I understand that. Watch this. Here's what James is talking about. In this case, here's a Christian who brags about his faith. And he doesn't simply walk away. When he sees his suffering brother or sister, he actually says something. Our mouth gets us in trouble, people. Have we gotten that yet from James? Our mouth keeps getting us in trouble. Let me, the the translators handle this in different ways. One says, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal. Another says, God be with you. Stay warm. Make sure you eat enough. The Phillips translation says, good luck to you. I hope you'll keep warm and find enough to eat. My personal favorite comes from the Living Bible. Quote, well, goodbye and God bless you. Stay warm and eat hearty. This is worse than what the priest and Levite did. They went to the other side of the road, but they didn't mock the man with their words. How much worse is it to mouth pious platitudes while not caring one whit about hurting people? What good is it? No good at all. What benefit is it? None at all. The man is still starving. The woman is still freezing. Your hearty God bless you rings mighty hollow in their eyes. God doesn't like it either. Sometimes, my friends, it's better just to keep your mouth shut. To piously talk about mercy means nothing. You can't eat good wishes. You can't keep warm with cold compliments. Don't talk about mercy. Show mercy. Get some soup and feed the hungry. Find some clothes and give it to the woman dressed in rags. Your empty words mean nothing. They do nothing. They help no one. In case you missed it, let me summarize what James has in mind. There are many ways to show the change Christ has made in us. Sometimes we will show it by what we don't do, i.e., we will show it By the fact that we used to do those things, we don't do them anymore. That sort of change may irritate our unsaved friends, but it's a positive witness because we no longer join them in their debauchery. That's that's a good way to show your faith, but what you no longer do. Sometimes we will show it by the change in our character. A life filled with love, joy, and peace in the place of anger, prejudice, and hatred. Sometimes the change will be seen as we actively pursue God through habits of holiness, like worship, like Bible reading, like giving, like prayer, like fellowship. That too is very valid. All of those things matter. And nothing I am saying should, be, should, should leave the implication that James thinks that doesn't matter. It's just that he's not talking about those things right here. He wants us to know that how we respond to the needs of others matters just as much. Will we 
roll up our sleeves and get involved in healing a broken world? Or will we blather on with our Sunday school platitudes while the hungry are not fed and the naked are not clothed? So it is very, very, very practical. And, and honestly, just as a way of personal note here, this passage and this sermon, in fact, this whole series kind of irritates me personally. I didn't write this stuff. I'm just reporting it to you. It's challenging, right? It's bothersome. It ought to be. If we can read this passage, if we can read James, if we can listen to these sermons, and I'm trying to listen to myself, if we can read this passage without feeling uncomfortable, we have missed the point. One final thing and we're done. We've had the question, had the illustration. Finally now, a very sobering conclusion. Very sobering conclusion, verse 17. So also, faith by itself, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Where does all this lead? If we live like this, our faith is dead, as dead as a corpse in the morgue. You go back. You look at the immediate context. What I preached about last night. James has just challenged us about the way we treat the rich and the poor when they come to church. If we favor the rich, we're guilty of the sin of partiality. If we are accepting in that case people or rejecting people on the basis of how much money they have, what sort of clothes they wear, what kind of car they drive, how cultured they seem, who their friends are, what kind of job they have, how connected they are, and all the rest. That is to say, James is not talking about hypothetical other people. He's talking about you and me. Church people, Christian people, Bible-believing people. He's thinking about pastors, elders, deacons, worship leaders, ushers, Sunday school teachers, Bible club leaders, small group leaders, children's workers, youth leaders, and all the rest. That's the context of these verses. So here then is a shocking conclusion. I told you the other night, if your Bible reading doesn't regularly contradict you, you're probably not doing it right. You could be a Bible-believing pastor with a degree from an evangelical seminary. You could preach Orthodox theology, and yet your faith could still be dead. That conclusion really bothers me. But there's no other way to get around what James is saying. Fill in that sentence for all the other church leaders I just mentioned. I said the pastor is an example because that's my category. That sentence more or less describes me. I can do all the right ministerial things and still have a dead faith. If, I, if I'm honest with myself, I don't care for that conclusion. It's not that it offends me. I can perfectly understand what James is saying, and I agree it's true. But it can, I confess, it bothers me on some level that being a, quote, good pastor isn't enough. Preaching well and leading well is a noble thing, and it's hard to do. But even if I somehow manage to do that, I can't blow off my obligation to care for the hurting people around me, the hurting people God brings across my path. Now, let me say, I'm trying to nail it down here, make it really clear. James is not suggesting that caring for the hurting is the only measure of a living faith. All the other stuff matters too. All of it does. He's not giving us an exhaustive list, but he's forcing us to realize that we cannot hide behind noble religious activity as an excuse not to care for others. It all goes together. My faith is dead if I talk without caring. My faith is dead 
if I preach without loving, my faith is dead. If I quote the Bible without applying it to my own life, my faith is dead. If I pray on Sunday, don't show compassion on Monday. My faith is dead. If I give my tithe and glibly spend the rest on myself. Just as I was studying at that point in my preparation, I came across this quote from Christian hip-hop artist Princeton Marcellus. Probably a new name to most of you. Princeton Marcellus, quote, who said, my faith is dead if it doesn't make me move. Ooh, write that down. All God's people said, ooh, write that down. My faith is dead if it doesn't make me move. I think James would agree 100%. Living faith is moving faith. That reminds me of Hebrews 11 with its long list of Old Testament heroes. They were men and women who lived and died by faith across many generations in many different situations. But their faith was moving faith. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch walked. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Isaac offered. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, the people marched. By faith, Rahab hid. Some of those people saw great victories. Others suffered and were sawn in two. Some withstood the fire while others hid in caves. Some escaped the sword while others died by the sword. But they were all approved by God. Why? Because their faith moved them to action. Active faith releases God's power. Passive faith is dead, useless, and empty. Now, I can think of two ways for us to apply this passage. Here they are. Number one, number one, don't brag about your faith. Live it. Don't brag about your faith live it. If you have to tell me how great you are, how great could you possibly be? Let's say that again. If you got to tell me how great you are, how great could you possibly be? If you got to brag all the time about who you are and what you've done and what you've accomplished, something's really gone wrong. Look, you remember Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls? Michael Jordan, when he played for the Chicago Bulls, he never bragged. We lived in Chicago during the years of all of Jordan's championships. And that's one thing you could say about him. He, he never bragged. Look, you don't have to brag when you win six NBA championships. In the same way, if your faith is strong, we'll know it. If you're brave, we'll know it. If you're compassionate, we'll know it. If you're courageous, we'll know it. If you care about other people, we'll know it. You don't have to brag about anything you do for God. If your faith is strong, you don't have to tell us. We'll see it by watching you. And if your faith is dead, your words don't matter anyway. Here's the second application. Ask God to use you this week right where you are. Right where you are. Now, I mentioned the other day that my only hobby is riding my bike. And every, every day when I'm home, this Saturday when we're home, I'll be out riding my bike around White Rock Lake. I do it every day when we're home. And I, and I have on my iPhone about 600 or maybe 700 songs. My, uh, 
Most of them are Christian songs. Almost half of them are Christmas music. So I listen to Christmas music all year long and, and just play it on my head. And, and, and I have it sung on, on a, what they got, random, you know, or random or scramble, whatever it is. Um, and th- what? What's the word? Ran- random or what? Do you, you hit that? Anyway, you don't know what's going to come up next, right? So, so I was riding my bike as I was working on this message. And I have a lot of contemporary music, a lot of hymns and stuff, and some gospel songs. And what do you know? Up on my playlist, as I was riding my bike, up came an old, old, old gospel song we never sing anymore called Brighten the Corner, Where You Are, written in 1913. See, some of, if I said this to the kids at the BI, they have no idea, no clue, didn't know such a song existed. You folks know, Brighten the Corner, Where You Are. Well, it became famous through the ministry of Homer Rotaheaver and the great evangelist Billy Sunday. In fact, after it was written, it became the theme song for all of Billy Sunday's campaigns. Wherever he went, Homer would lead the choir and brighten the corner where you are. It's a catchy tune. It's It's not really too deep theology, right? Not too deep. It's not like holy, holy, holy or or a mighty fortress. No, it operates on a different level. But the first verse sets the tone. Do not wait until some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to shed your light afar. To the many duties near you, now be true. Brighten the corner where you are. And then the chorus, brighten the corner where you are. Brighten the corner where you are. Someone far from harbor, you may guide across the bar. Brighten the corner where you are. I think James would say amen to those simple words. Don't wait to do great deeds. Don't postpone action until some heroic hour. Say it to you this way. He who waits to do something great for God will most likely end up doing nothing at all. Mm. Mm. Don't wait to do great deeds. Start where you are, as you are, shining the light, serving the Lord. Or said more simply, brighten the corner where you are. If we want a faith that's alive and not dead, we can have it. It's not hard. We must ask God for his help, looking always to Jesus, depending on the Spirit's aid. And then we must start right where we are. Start today, right here at Word of Life, Florida, to brighten the corner where we are. You never know what burden you may lift, what tears you may wipe away, what life you may touch, or what soul you may guide safely home to heaven. Dr. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, was an accomplished speaker and writer in her own right. One of her favorite definitions that she repeated over and over was her definition of a saint. What's a saint, said Ruth Bell Graham? A saint is someone who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. Isn't that good? A saint is someone who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. This sermon began with a sobering reminder of what happened in Oregon and in Aleppo, Syria. It ended with the hopeful words, of a gospel song. How do we connect Roseburg, Oregon, 
the Christians in Syria would brighten the corner where you are. I answer this way. The students in Roseburg, Oregon, had no idea that morning what was about to happen when they went to class that day. No more did the Christians in Syria know what was going to happen. Christians who died in both cases were given no advance notice. They had their own hopes and dreams for the future. I think for the students, they were thinking about their weekend plans. Some were no doubt thinking about a guy or girl they'd like to date. They were, in short, totally normal young people. Then the killer began to shoot and everything changed. God bless those young people who in the crisis answered yes when asked, are you a Christian? They paid the ultimate price for their faith. I do understand that for most of us, the tests of life will not be like that. But the challenge is the same for all of us. Get your faith in gear. So no matter what happens today or tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, you'll be ready to stand up for Jesus. Make it your aim to brighten every corner with the love of Christ. Decide now to live for Christ every day. Take your stand so that when you are asked, are you a Christian? No one will be surprised when you say yes. That's the fifth message to the 21st century church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to preach a good sermon by the way we live today. May our words match our witness and our deeds match our doctrine. Help us to be saints who make it easy for others to believe in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.